This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We received word on Monday from someone who's been contracted to do work for Radio Parallax in the past that, sadly, Carol Channing has passed away. Our contractor said you're probably going to commemorate her on the program. I remember typing up your interview for publication, which did appear in K-Deviations. I now hold that particular uh, paper in my hand, and I could do worse than to read from its intro, which was, Our guest is a legend of the Broadway stage, Carol Channing. Ms. Channing won a Tony in 1964 for her lead role in Hello, Dolly, which ran for a record 2,844 performances. Hello, Dolly won 10 Tonys, a record which stood for 37 years. When the original Broadway cast album went to number one, it knocked the Beatles off the top of the charts. Dolly was far from the only role which won her smash reviews. In the 50s, she first lit up the stage as Lorelai Lee in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes a role which she repeated over 3,000 times. And on the web, you'll find rave reviews for Carol's recent one-woman show, The First 80 Years Are the Hardest. We will not see her like again anytime soon, I don't think. And as a consequence, I think, Mr. Merlin, we should excerpt uh, a few moments from that interview. Uh, It is available in its entirety at our website, radioparallax.com. Mr. Merlin, will you do me the favor of queuing up a few... (laughs) fine moments from that marvelous interview. Carol Channing, welcome to Radio Parallax. Oh, thank you, Doug Everett. (laughs) Thank you. What a lovely introduction. Well, I I was amazed to note in researching for our talk today that you went 35 years without missing a stage performance. You came out in a wheelchair once. You broke both arms while performing. You fell into the orchestra pit, and and you're still performing now. How, how How do you do it? I broke three ribs on, on falls in the orchestra pit, and we had a, a ramp, a, a, a runway in Hello, Dolly, and I kept falling off that, and I fell into a dear, sweet, uh, laughing, fat lady's lap. It was, it was sheer providence, and uh, I didn't hit the, the two arms on it at all, and I'm desperate to get back up on the runway, so I just seemed to bounce right back up again. Wow. Yes. You you also noted that you've given some of your best performances when you were sick. Yes, that's the when you do your best. Have you noticed that you do your best interviews and you do you do your best writing and all that when you just can't possibly do it? It brings out the best in everybody. Even a lifelong Christian scientist, does that help you sometimes in that regard of finding that energy? I'm everybody's religion. Okay. Everybody's. My parents were devout Christian scientists, and and they were. I'm. I just adored them. I thought they were wonderful. You know, there's only one Creator, and and you know what I noticed when I was little, and I went backstage for the first time. It it I, I it came over me. I looked at this theater, and it was a dark theater. And my mother and I were delivering Christian Science monitors, and I was the dark theater there, and I thought. This is holy ground. 
I mean, this is a mosque, a synagogue, a temple, a mother church, a cathedral, this wonderful place. I was so little, I couldn't open the stage door, and it came over me, and nobody else was backstage but my mother and me, and I just stood there and felt it, and I realized all we do... I didn't know I wanted to be in the theater then. I hadn't seen any show yet. But but all artists do is they recreate what was already created. Well, I was intrigued. Uh, uh, Miss Channing talking about going around and, 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 and giving people some, some of the pearls of which you've learned from your long experience in the stage. You said something in an interview I thought was quite fascinating. You said you learned that on the stage you must not react for the audience. If you laugh or cry, then the audience doesn't have to. Very intriguing. Yes, they, see, I, then I'm doing all the work. But they bought the tickets. They're the ones that bought the tickets so they can laugh and cry and applaud and throw things at you if they want to. You know, I mean, that, that's their privilege. And that's, we mustn't do it for them. We all cry over Joan of Arc because she never felt sorry for herself. We cry over, uh, what is that thing John Steinbeck wrote during the Depression with that terrible drought and all that? Grapes of wrath, yes. Grapes of wrath. Oh, I cried over Henry Fonda because the dignity of the man. He never, he never gave in to being a member of the Depression. He wanted to keep going and he couldn't because it was, it was oh, he, he, he just wiped me away. But that's the way theater works. It works that way. He never cried for himself. He let me cry as a member of the audience. Interesting. It's like somebody laughing at his own joke. <laughs> well, we're guilty of that on occasion on this program, but, but oh well. We'll try and do better, Ms. Ms. Channing. I was shocked to discover that Hello, Dolly! was written for Ethel Merman. Oh, yes. Uh, Jerry Herman keeps telling people that. He wrote it for Ethel Merman. And Ethel said, yeah, I, I turned that show down. <laughs> <laughs> she said, ah, it'll go nowhere. <laughs> I adored Ethel Merman. We all did. Anyway, for more information on Carol Channing, we encourage you to check out their various obituaries which have been appearing the last few days. I also want to thank Capital Public Radio, in particular Jen Picard, producer of Insight for hooking us up with Carol Channing. Since we are looking back uh, a decade or more, I was pleased to find uh, among the, the archives which have been set aside for Radio Parallax, things sometimes we used and sometimes that we did not. I don't know which category this falls into, but I think it's worth going over a couple of these today. They were uh, a collection of new rules. I don't think these came from Bill Maher's program, but I, I'm not sure. Anyway, there's four of them that kind of resonated with us, starting with new rule. Ladies, leave your eyebrows alone. Here's how much men care about your eyebrows. Do you have two? Okay, we're done. New rule. You don't need bigger mega M&Ms. If you're feeling extra hungry for M&Ms, go nuts and eat two packages. New rule. Stop saying that teenage boys who have sex with their hot teachers are permanently damaged. I have a better description for those kids. Lucky sons of guns. And final new rule. The more complicated the Starbucks order, the bigger the jerk you are. If you walk into a Starbucks and order a decaf grande half soy, half low fat, ice vanilla, double shot, gingerbread cappuccino, extra dry, light ice with one sweet and low and one NutraSweet, oh, you're a huge jerk.
And you know, I feel I need to order up an apology to someone. In this case, this would be the ghost of Mitch Hedberg. As I recall, many years back, I was reading some column that kept quoting from some of Mitch Hedberg's one-liners, and I thought they were pretty lame. I think that had a lot more to do with the guy doing the selecting than it did with Hedberg's humor. I've subsequently been able to see some of his work on YouTube, and I gotta say, the guy was pretty funny. I did make several people laugh late. I did make several people laugh of late, <laughs> quoting his line of, I-, "I used to do drugs. I still do, but I used to also." Of course, by way of public service announcement, we do have to add, sadly, that apparently Mitch did die of a drug overdose. Too bad. Great talent. Sorry he's gone. Another guy we're sorry to see missing from the scene is Bill Hicks. And although he made a lot of you mad, Sam Kinison. We've lost some great ones, and yet, and yet Will Ferrell still lives. Do we mention, Mr. Millen, that his new movie, uh, where he plays Sherlock Holmes, earned a zero rating on Rotten Tomatoes? I think a lot of people want to correct that, and they bumped it up to something like 8% now. But I'll wager that if some PR folks hadn't taken matters into their own hand, it would still be down near zero. And we're going to try to um, not talk about current events regarding the evils of uh, technology and or Donald Trump, particularly where the two meet in terms of manipulation of voters. Uh, we will, in our second segment, take a look back at the origins of Trump in the TV setting. TV will kind of be something of the theme in much of our second half today. I do want to revisit a quote dredged up by The Economist, the Lexington column, uh, writing about the departure of Jim Mattis and John Kelly from the Trump <laughs> fiasco. The columnist noted that uh, Trump's biggest mistake was to assume that generals, the last of whom departed his administration this week, would serve as ruthless executors of his will. He noted they also fitted with his hazy understanding of his new job. As commander-in-chief, he expected to issue orders with the Olympian majesty of a Hollywood general. By surrounding himself with real-life ones, he assumed he would have a disciplined team of experts in carrying orders out. That the general's tough-guy cachet would glorify his imagined own was an additional delight. But it did not work out that way, mainly because Mr. Trump's notion of presidential power was as real as his idea of generalship. Poor Ike. It won't be a bit like the army, mused Harry Truman on his incoming successor, Dwight Eisenhower. He'll sit here and he'll say, do this, do that, and nothing will happen. That certainly seems to be the case with the current administration. Although, oddly enough, having the government capable of not doing anything (laughs) seems to be one of the goals. All right, let's talk about other stuff. We did make some passing mention of American football, I think the last two programs. I just want to say that this coming weekend's NFL playoffs promise to be two barn burner good games with lots and lots of offense. Because isn't it fun to watch people running up and down the field scoring? That sounds like basketball. It's the right amount of running up and down the field and scoring. Not scoring every damn time. But thank you for your input, Mr. McMillan. You're welcome. And, you know, I I think we should congratulate the Chinese Space Agency for putting a uh, rover onto the far side of the moon. This had never been done before, in part because, well, there's no way of communicating via radio with something on the far side of the moon. It's blocked, which is why that in the future is going to be a great spot for radio astronomy when we go back. But the Chinese first put an orbiter around the moon to relay signals, and they've used it to communicate with its rover. 
Now, so far, Radio Parallax has been unable to confirm that an anonymous NASA spokesman commented on the rover known as the Chang E-4, which last week touched down in the South Pole Aitken Basin on the moon. We cannot confirm that the spokesperson claimed that the rover was driving too slow and was taking too long to execute turns. Maybe someone said it, maybe someone didn't. And to delve even further into the miscellaneous file, we have this item, which frankly we just can't resist here at Radio Parallax. The story is that when a Krispy Kreme donut truck caught fire in Lexington, Kentucky, police extinguished the blaze and then sent out tongue-in-cheek photo montages showing weepy officers mourning the charred pastries. According to The Week magazine, these sad-faced photos quickly went viral and prompted an equally ironic outpouring of condolences from police departments nationwide. The cops in Slouton, Massachusetts wrote, We are deeply sorry for your loss. The NYPD jokingly tweeted it had dispatched a jet full of emergency donuts to Lexington. And apparently Krispy Kreme sent actual donuts via a truck that arrived, naturally, with a police escort. We think that's pretty funny. And how about that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? When is the last time you've seen a freshman congressman who's been in office for a week gain national headlines for her pronouncements about how things ought to be? We at Radio Parallax suspect this has something to do with the fact that she's, well, a bit of a hottie. Can we say that? I'm not sure. Well, what's done is done. At any rate... This very, let's say, photogenic uh, new congressperson has evidently already ignited a serious national debate over what our top tax rate ought to be and what the nation should do about climate change. Well, we're there on the last one. As for the idea of uh, upping the top taxation rate in the country, um, a lot of people like to point out that back in the 50s, we had a tax rate of something like 90%. And although we're somewhat appalled to find ourselves agreeing with the Wall Street Journal... We do have to share their skepticism that optimal, quote-unquote, top tax rates as high as 73% or even 84% are going to maximize government revenues. This assumes that the corporations of America don't have accountants working to hide the money flow. Anybody who remembers the first time PG&E went bankrupt, oh yeah, they declared bankruptcy this week or about to, that was back when Enron managed to find a way to strip mine California of lots of revenue for their funny way of upping energy charges. Well, Enron was doing some funny things with their accounting. And now, in, in the case of Enron, it wound up catching up with them when the, com- when the company imploded after at one point being, being considered America's fifth largest corporation. Anyone who remembers what happened 10 years ago back in 08 should also recall that there was a lot of accounting monkey business, and I think there always is. I mentioned on this show before, and it's probably worth mentioning again, that there was a great book written back in, um, I guess it was the 1970s, by Noah Dietrich, who had been Howard Hughes's right-hand man for decades. Only he was much older than Hughes. He, oddly enough, wound up outliving his former boss, Keeping in mind that Howard Hughes was probably America's first billionaire, or at least, well, not the first billionaire, but probably our only billionaire in the 50s and 60s because people who'd been billionaires previously had their holdings divided up among family members, yada, yada, yada. At any rate, he's a pretty rich guy. 
And Dietrich pointed out in his book that Howard paid no income tax. Dietrich, on the other hand, was subject to that 90% tax rate on the 500000 or so a year he was pulling in on salary from Howard. Anyway, this whole thing strikes us as pretty naive and pretty silly, and yet uh, people are just, you know, talking about it like that's going to fix our problem. It isn't. Now, we're not saying we believe in the Laffer curve, <laughs> which was apparently written on an envelope by Arthur Laffer explaining to Ronald Reagan why tax cuts would stimulate the uh, economy. We are currently going down that rather ludicrous road yet again. And all it's going to do is, you know, increase the national debt. I said I wasn't going to talk about Trump, huh? Didn't I? Yes, you did. Damn. Well, I was trying to move things on to the Democrats. I'm disturbed to see things like this pop up. As Senator Bernie Sanders considers another run for the president, he was confronted last week with allegations that several women on his 2016 campaign experienced sexual harassment and other misconduct. Appearing on CNN, Sanders claimed he was unaware of the allegations when they were first raised, saying, I was a little bit busy running around the country. Yet, more than two dozen former aides requested a meeting with Sanders last week to discuss the issue of sexual violence and harassment on the 2016 campaign. Uh, You have some doubts about this? They canned Al Franken out of the U.S. Senate, a guy who was doing a good job, who was undeniably progressive over some rather, we think, flimsy charges. And um, I don't know. I just wonder if this isn't the work of people like Roger Stone. (laughs) How's that for a segue? A lot of times on this show, we, we like to read reviews of books without ever getting around to reading the books because sometimes, uh, well, they appear to be interesting and worth mentioning, and maybe you will go out and check them out. The week included a review of a book titled Ike's Mystery Man, The Secret Lives of Robert Cutler by Peter Schrinkle. This is worth a minute or two. Robert Cutler was America's first chief national security advisor. He was a Harvard Law School graduate, former Brigadier General, former bank president, and poet. And it turns out, throughout his long career, a closeted gay man. That secret is revealed in this book by his great-nephew. It's rather striking because Cutler, as Dwight Eisenhower's right-hand man, helped draft a 1953 executive order that triggered a massive purge of federal workers suspected of, quote, sexual perversion, unquote. Only decades later did author Peter Schinkel an ex-reporter, find a 700-page diary that revealed Cutler had been deeply in love at the time with a young male staffer, Skip Coons. And while today it may seem rather outrageous that the sexual orientation of civil servants was considered a national security issue, in Cutler's time there was what was called the Lavender Scare. People have pointed out that security fears did have some basis. Closeted homosexuals could be blackmailed into spying. Cutler himself avoided being outed by the investigations that he unleashed. He was behind this effort to root out the perverts in the federal government. Author Peter Schrinkel thinks that uh, Cutler wrote the ban on gay and lesbian workers as much to cover his own tracks as to appease the McCarthyite wing of the Republican Party. And yes, as you might imagine, Cutler managed to sidestep the witch hunt which he himself helped unleash. Let me take a moment to jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right. On this first item, Mr. Merlin, make sure that I enunciate very clearly. 
These three items all come from the week. The first is that we would judge it to be a good week for the First Amendment, we think, with the news that a yet-to-open Vietnamese restaurant in Keene, New Hampshire, is fighting for the right to call itself the Pho Keen Great Restaurant. As you are no doubt aware, Vietnam's national dish, a broth and noodle soup, is pronounced pho, which the city officials in Keene say makes the restaurant's name inappropriate. We would note that owner Isabel Jolie says that it's discriminatory to say that a Vietnamese word combined with the name of our city is considered offensive. And we think we should be very, very careful about any wisecracks at this point. Although it is interesting, we were very worried uh, some years back about any transgression that might bring the FCC down on our heads. This was during the uh, Bush-Cheney administration when uh, they were playing tough guys with uh, anybody out there who might be seen as, I guess you might say, troublesome. It would seem that a decade later, with Donald Trump as president, there's quite a bit less concern about that as there's quite a bit less concern about the federal government being able to carry out any of its legitimate and proper actions, such as air traffic control. All right, moving right along. It was a bad week last week for romance with the news that a survey by personal finance site finder.com shows that 77% of Americans want to avoid dating a partner who is in debt. According to MarketWatch.com, asked how much debt would disqualify a partner entirely, respondents said an average of $11,000 in credit card debt or $51,000 in student loans. Well, so much for romantic sentiments. And at this juncture, we should inject... The sad news that uh, the captain of Captain and Tennille, who produced that that fine hit you just heard, uh, has left us. Daryl Dragon was a classically trained pianist and was the son of Academy Award-winning composer and arranger Carmen Dragon. And I am sad to note that the Captain and Tennille actually got divorced back in 2013. Evidently, love did not keep them together, although she was with him at the end and helped nurse him in his time of need. And no, Mr. Millen, I don't know how he was labeled the captain. We'll have to research that one. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for... And finally, it was an ugly week last week for getting a text from your husband with the news that per new regulations in Saudi Arabia, husbands are now required to alert their wives by text message if they decide to divorce them. This ends the practice of secret divorce, whereby men can end their marriages without their wife's knowledge. Yes, they're apparently making great strides over in human rights issues in Saudi Arabia. And and they are, of course, trying people for murder in the case of uh, the death of Jamal Khashoggi. And they're being tough with them. They're facing the death penalty in this, what is evidently a murder-for-hire case. A case in which the guy that did the hiring is not on trial. We do note that the Saudi government has been able to eliminate Lee Harvey Oswald as a suspect. 
We cannot confirm the rumor that O.J. Simpson has been hired by Mohammed bin Salman to help find the real killers, but we're looking into it. And you know, it's something else that is, I think, a radio parallax first. We started the segment with an obituary, and I think we will also end the segment with an obituary. Yes, I realize we have started and ended segments with one, but never both, I don't think. You know, a line we've used many, many times in this program is that the news consists of informing people that Lord Jones is dead, people who never knew that Lord Jones was alive. That's applicable here because I never knew the name Herb Kelleher until now, but he's worth a few minutes. Herb Kelleher, say the obituaries, was not your typical CEO. The Southwest Airlines co-founder would sometimes roar into company gatherings on a Harley-Davidson or strut in dressed as Elvis. He would help haul baggage during the Thanksgiving rush, and he once arm-wrestled another airline boss to settle a legal dispute. And lost! The Economist had a lot of complimentary things to say in its obituary of Herb. They noted he liked being flexible with trade unions. In 1994, during discussions over an unprecedented 10-year agreement that would freeze pilots' wages for five years in return for stock options, he promised Gary Cairns, president of the Pilots Association, if the contract went through, he would freeze his own salary and bonus for five years as well. Chairman and pilots should get the same treatment. The deal was done. Herb Kelleher studied English and philosophy in college, then got a law degree at New York University. He was working down in Texas when a client came in and talked about how he owned a small commuter airline and thought that there should be a better way to travel between Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio. Back in the 1970s, aviation was dominated by the hub-and-spoke approach pioneered by Delta Airlines. Planes would fly to hub cities and hoover up passengers. What uh, Kelleher's clients proposed was a cheap point-to-point travel using convenient airports near to fast-growing city centers. The competition was not other airlines, they believed, but cars. After all, the distance between Houston and San Antonio is less than 200 miles, a three-hour journey by road was a good idea, but what he hadn't reckoned on was the airline competition. Within a day, Braniff, Trans-Texas, and Continental applied for a restraining order stopping Southwest from taking to the skies, arguing that Texas was perfectly well served by existing airlines. For the next four years, through the State District Court in Austin, the State Court of Civic Appeals, the Texas Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court, the big airlines pleaded for injunctions that would kill off the new business. And in the end, they won, but the legal batters... In the end, they won, but the legal battles forged the Southwest culture. Southwest became his cause. When one airline ran an ad claiming that Southwest was a cheap carrier, he had himself filmed with a paper bag over his head, saying the airline was prepared to offer the same to any mortified passenger. When another started a price war and halved its Dallas to Houston fare down to $13, Southwest countered, pay full price and get a bottle of vodka or whiskey in return. When a rival airline complained that Southwest pinched its slogan and began advertising itself as Just Plain Smart, P-L-A-N-E, he suggested the two chairmen settle the matter over three rounds of arm wrestling instead of using lawyers, and I guess that's the case that he lost. Now, dear listener, you probably have flown Southwest. You know that it serves no meals, just gives you peanuts, although I think now they're just giving you pretzels. And uh, to ensure fast turnaround, it offers no seat assignments. They note planes don't make money when on the ground. It and making money in good times to ride out lean years was what it was all about. Southwest has made an annual profit for 45 years straight. Southwest allegedly hired people for their attitude. Skills they figured you could always teach. 
Initially, its flight attendants wore hot pants, but when it won its first triple crown for best on-time performance, fewest customer complaints, and smallest number of mishandled bags, well, all the customer service employees were allowed to give up their uniforms and dress casually for a year. What a guy. Although I suppose it's kind of hard to imagine today with all of our news about CEOs and what they've been up to, but airline workers back in 1994 took out a full-page newspaper ad praising their chairman. That was on Boss's Day. Southwest employees pitched an hour's salary each to raise $60,000 to thank Herb for remembering every one of our names, for listening, for being a friend, and not just being a boss. Sounds like a pretty good dude, don't you think? All right, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax.